Hi, this is Bill Crockett. Thank you for visiting our sermon audio webpage. And I trust the lesson you're about to listen to will be a help and an encouragement to you in your life today. Before we get started with our lesson, can I take just a moment to ask you to prayerfully consider becoming a financial partner with Bill Crockett Ministries? We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization that depends completely upon the donations and gifts of those who love us and who benefit from the ministry of Bill Crockett. There are three ways you can help. First of all, you can give by going and clicking on the Donate button on the Bill Crockett Ministries homepage right here on Sermon Audio. Or you can visit our website at www.billcrockett.com and give there. Or you can mail your gift to Bill Crockett Ministries, P.O. Box 3845, Irmo, South Carolina. That's I-R-M-O, South Carolina, 29063. Also, let me encourage you to visit our website at www.billcrockett.com to find out more about Bill, hear his testimony, read his biography, look at the other resources that we have available for Sunday school classes, home Bible studies, small group Bible studies, and even personal Bible study, where we have whole series available on CD with study guides for each lesson. Thank you again for your love and concern and support of Bill Crockett Ministries. Now, let's get to our lesson. It's Psalm 139. We are continuing our series that we call The Foundation of Our Faith, and it is basically a study through the foundational doctrines of the Christian faith. It's what we believe from the Bible uh, that God wants us to know and teaches us. So we have talked about bibliology, which is the doctrine of the Bible. We finished that. Now we are in the topic of theology, which is actually the proper study of God himself and what he's like. Um, and we last week looked at what he is like in his essence. We're talking about the nature of God. And so we looked at what he is like in his essence. Today, we're going to talk about his attributes. Um, and God in his attributes, there are actually two aspects of his attributes. There are non-moral attributes, attributes about God that have no moral bearing. And then there are moral attributes, attributes about God that do affect morality. And as we learn what God is like morally, and since we know that we're supposed to be like Him, then that ought to teach us the kind of beings we ought to be morally, because that's the way He is. So we're going to look at both of those today. But let's start with Psalm 139 and verse number 7. And we're going to talk today about the attributes of God. Verse number 7, Psalm 139. The writer says, Where can I go? From your spirit, where can I flee from your presence? Basically, David is saying, God, there is no place in existence that I can go and get away from you. I can't get away. You're everywhere. So where can I go? And then he he begins to describe it a little bit in verse 8. If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. 
If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. A couple of things real quick by way of introduction. David says, there's no place I can go and get away from God. Now, there are two thoughts along that. Number one, as a believer, why would we want to get away from God? However, as an unbeliever who doesn't want God to mess with me, that's probably not a pleasant thought. I don't want God to see what I'm doing. I don't want God to know what I'm thinking. I don't want God to see me acting like this or doing this or being involved in this. The fact is, there's no place I can go where God is not already there and sees everything I'm doing. How do I know that? Because of the attributes of God. Because of what he's like. So let's look at these, first of all, non-moral attributes. Um, this is our doctrinal statement from our church. Oh, can you guys over here see this? Can y'all see that? Those little bitty words. Can you guys see that in the back row? I notice that most everybody sitting on the back row doesn't wear glasses. Um, uh, well, Jonathan, <laughs> contacts. Okay. Uh, if I sat back there, I would need a telescope. But anyway, um, God is the creator and ruler of the universe. He has eternally existed in three personalities, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three are co-equal and are God. So that is the doctrinal statement from our church about what we believe about the doctrine of God. So today we're going to talk about the non-moral and the moral attributes of God. So here are the non-moral attributes of God. Let me give them to you and then we'll talk a little bit about them. First of all, Omnipresence. That just simply means he is always present everywhere. Now, don't, don't try too hard to figure out every aspect of this stuff because remember, he's God, we're not. If we try and completely understand every aspect of this, you're going to blow a gasket. And for some of us, we've blown so many throughout our life, we ain't got many left. So you're never going to fully understand everything about God. But you don't want to, because then he wouldn't be God. So he is omnipresent. Literally, he is always present everywhere. Number two, he is omniscient. What does that mean? He's all-knowing. He knows everything. Past, present, future, he knows everything. Number three, he is omnipotent or omnipotence. That means he's all-powerful. God has the ability to do whatever he wills to be done. And nothing can stop him. Nothing. Not me, not you, not Satan. Nothing can stop him. Okay? And then number four, he is immutable. That just means he is unchanging. Now we're going to talk a little bit more about that when we get to it. Because some of you may have read in the Bible where God appears to change his mind. And so somebody says, well, now, wait a minute. If God is unchanging, then why did he change his mind? Well, we're gonna, I'm going to explain that to you and try and help us to understand what immutability means about God. And hopefully you'll have a better grasp of what is happening when God says that I, it repented me that I made man on the earth and then he sent a flood. God, did you change your mind? I mean, you made man, and now you've changed your mind? You wish you'd never done it? 
I mean, what, what's the deal here? How does that jive with immutability? Well, we're going to talk about that in just a minute, okay? So let's go back up, and let's take these one at a time. I'm going to give you some verses. Uh, unfortunately, we won't have time to read them all, but I'm going to give them to you, so I hope you'll write them down. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about this. First of all, omnipresence. He is always present everywhere. In Psalm 139 and verse 7, the verse we just read, David said, where can I go and get away from your presence? And the answer is nowhere. He is always everywhere. Now, let me give you some other verses. Acts 17, verses 27 and 28. Acts 17, verses 27 and 28. And then Jeremiah, chapter 23, verses 23 and 24. Jeremiah 23, 23 and 24. Let me read those to you. God is speaking. Am I only a God nearby, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can anyone hide in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Listen to this. Do not I fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. Now think about that. God says, do I not fill with my presence the heavens and the earth? Literally, God's presence fills up the heavens and the earth. It's not like he is a trillion little bitty different beings all over everywhere. His presence fills everything. It would be as if my hand was all of the existence of the universe, and I'm God. I am present everywhere. I fill it up. There's no place you can go on my hand that I'm not there. I am there. That's what we are to God. He is present everywhere. That's His omnipresence. Now, what does that mean to you and me? Well, that means a lot of things. First of all, remember last week we talked about His essence. We talked about the fact of His immensity meaning he is not governed or limited by space. So you, you can't close God into a space. Space is irrelevant to God because he's everywhere. That proves his omnipresence. Now, what does that mean to me? Well, again, if I'm doing something bad, it probably is an incentive to stop doing it. But if I'm going through difficulty, it's an encouragement. There is never a deep valley that I will ever go through that God is not already there. And He was there before I ever got there. And He knows I'm going there because of His omniscience. And He's got a purpose for it. So first of all, there's His omnipresence. He is everywhere. There's nowhere you can go that God won't be there to help you. Number two, His omniscience. This means that He is all-knowing. Take your Bible, turn back to Proverbs chapter 15 and verse number 3. Proverbs 15 and verse 3. And while you're turning there, um, let me give you a few other verses before we read that one. Psalm 147, verse number 5. All these have to do with his omniscience, or the fact that he knows everything. And then Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 13. Psalm 147, verse 5, and Hebrews 4 and verse 13. Proverbs 15 and verse 3. The eyes of the Lord are everywhere, keeping watch on the wicked and the good. Why does God know everything? Because he sees everything. 
He sees it all. The eyes of the Lord are everywhere. There's nothing you and I can do that he doesn't see it. There's no way to get away from it. Do you know those thoughts we have in the middle of the night when we lie awake in our room all alone, dark? Or in my wife's case, if she wakes up in the middle of the night lying awake in our room dark and her husband snoring like a freight train, still all alone because he's dead to the world. And we're thinking these thoughts that we think nobody knows but me and God. He knows them all. That's good for me. Now, now don't forget, we're human. We're going to think wrong things. We're going to do wrong things. And we're going to say wrong things. And that, number one, doesn't shock God. And number two, it doesn't change his attitude about me. It doesn't make God not like me because I do something wrong. He loves me no matter what. But what that does mean is there's nothing that I'm going to have to go through that God doesn't see it and He knows about it. That helps me. If you know that's the kind of God you've got, your God is not some little chubby statue on a desk somewhere. He is the creator of the universe. He is present everywhere and He knows everything. So whenever you meet that person who thinks they know everything, you can say, I know somebody smarter than you are. God. There's a lot of people smarter than me, but nobody's smarter than God. His omnipresence or omniscience. Number three, his omnipotence. This means that he has the power to do whatever he wants to do. Now, let me, let me tell you this. What he chooses to do is governed by his character. He can do whatever he wants to do. He will not sin. He will not do wrong. He will not be unjust. He will always do what is righteous and just. And we're going to talk about that in just a minute when we get to his moral attributes. But he has the power to do anything. Matthew chapter 28 and verse number 18. This is where the Bible says Jesus is giving the Great Commission. And he says, all power or authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth. In other words, Jesus said, I have the power and the authority to do whatever I want to do. I am all powerful. Greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. Satan is not more powerful than God. So it doesn't matter how powerful Satan is. And when we get to that topic later on this fall, and we study about angels and demons and Satan, you're going to see he is much more powerful than we are. So don't mess with him. But he is not more powerful than God. That's why Paul tells us, greater is he that's in us. And that's the only protection we got, is Christ in us than he that's in the world. I don't have to be afraid of the devil if I've got Jesus inside of me, because he's far more powerful than Satan is. And you don't have to be afraid of him either. You do need to know how to approach him and deal with him. And we got to be careful we don't get cocky and end up doing things God says don't do. And then we get in a mess. Because he is more powerful than we are. Don't take him on on your own. However, our God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. Some more verses. Job 42 and verse 2. Job 42 and verse 2. 
The Bible says, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. Job said, God, I know you can do all things and nothing can stop your plans. Nothing. In Genesis chapter 18, verse number 14. Remember when the Lord came to Abraham and said, your wife Sarah is going to have a child. She's 90-some years old. You're 100 years old, but she's going to have a baby. And Abraham laughed. By the way, Sarah laughed too. And you know what God said in Genesis 18 and verse 14? He looked at Abraham and said, is anything too hard for the Lord? You know what the obvious answer to that question is? No. Why is nothing too hard for God? Because He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He can do anything. In Jeremiah chapter 32, Jeremiah had been discouraged. And in Jeremiah chapter 32 and verse 17, he's praying. And he says, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and stretched out arm, and there is nothing too hard for you. In Jeremiah 32 and verse 27, God answers him. And he says, Jeremiah, basically, I'm glad to see that you have realized there is nothing too hard for me. Do you know what that means to us? Because he's omnipotent, that means that anything that God asks us to do, he will make sure we have the strength and the ability and the power to do it. Because he's omnipotent. He can do anything. Number three, or number four, he is immutable. In James chapter 1 and verse 17, the Bible says that the Lord has no variableness or shadow of turning or changing in him. He doesn't change. In Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6, God himself says, I am the Lord, I change not. Okay, so, if God says he doesn't change, then why did he apparently change his mind about creating man and send a flood? Why in other places in the Bible does he apparently change his mind? Why does prayer work? If God doesn't change, then by me praying, how do I know I can change what God's about to do? So let me see if I can explain that to you. When the Bible teaches that God does not change, let me give you the areas in which he does not change. Number one, he does not change in his essence, in his nature. Number two, he doesn't change in his attributes. These and the, the moral attributes we're about to talk about, they never change. Number three, he does not change in his consciousness. He is always completely existent. That will never change. And number four, he does not change in his will, his purpose. That never changes. However, everything else that God does relative to us is governed by those four things that don't change. For example, God says, Bill, I'm going to bless your life and I'm going to help you to do and be successful at what I've called you to do. And then all of a sudden, four or five years after Bill has been doing what God called him to do, Bill decides, I'm going to do what Bill wants to do. And now, all of a sudden, I'm not successful anymore. Did God change his mind? No. He changed the way he dealt with me based upon what I did, which is governed by his attributes and his character. He didn't change his mind. He didn't change who he was. 
He had to change how he dealt with me because of me. But God is still the same God. He says, I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. So in his essence, his attributes, his consciousness, and his purpose, that never changes. And God's purpose will be accomplished. In a few weeks, when we get to the doctrine of man, one of the things we're going to talk about in our first lesson is the providence of God. Uh, a lesson, by the way, I just taught to our married class. And you're going to see that God is in control of everything. And nothing can stop his purpose. The way he works in our lives to make that purpose get accomplished may change because we change. But who he is in his essence, his attributes, his consciousness, and his purpose, that never changes. Okay? So does that, does that help you understand? It's okay for God to change the way he deals with us, but the things that govern the way he works in our life, those things never change. He will always deal with us based on the same criteria because he's always going to be the same kind of God. Okay? So, again, it's one of those things. Don't try and understand everything about it because you'll blow, like me, one of those two gaskets that are left. So don't, don't just trust him, all right, that he'll never do anything unjust or wrong. Okay? And, he, and you never have to worry about him ever stopping liking you. When the Bible says nothing can separate me from the love of God, I don't ever have to worry about one day God changing and deciding he don't love me no more. I don't ever have to worry about one day God changing his mind and saying, you know, I sent Jesus to die. I've decided I'm going to cut this off. Nobody else gets into heaven. You don't have to worry about that because that part in his essence, that never changes. He will always be consistent, okay? So those are the non-moral attributes of God. Now, quickly, let's talk about the moral attributes of God. And there are four of these. First of all, there is His holiness. Simply stated, it means that He is totally separate from moral evil and sin. Let me give you some verses. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16. And Leviticus chapter 11, verses 44 and 45. Leviticus 11, 44 and 45. In both of these verses, God makes the statement, you be holy because I'm holy. You be separate from moral evil and sin because I am separate from moral evil and sin. The difference is God will always be separate from moral evil and sin. You and I are not. We battle with sin. We are in a fight with our sin nature, with the world and the temptation of Satan to stay holy and not give in and be involved in moral evil and sin. But when you and I get involved in moral evil and sin, we are not like God in his attributes because he is holy. He is completely separate from moral evil and sin. And by the way, please understand that these are moral sins that are disobedience to the law. Holiness is not how you cut your hair or the kind of clothes you wear or the style of music you listen to. That's not holiness. Holiness is not legislated with an outward appearance. Holiness is an inward attribute that controls my actions. I am separate from moral evil and sin. I do my best with God's working in me 
to not sin and be involved in moral evil. Okay? But again, remember now, that's God. He'll never be that way. We're not God. So we will sin, and we will be involved in moral, things that are not morally right. We tell lies. We tell half-truths, which are whole lies. We, we think bad thoughts. We get angry and sin. And remember we studied that when we studied anger? You can be angry and sin not, the Bible says. But most of the time, we get angry and sin. But we're human. That's why we need God. This is our goal. And by the way, when we get to heaven, that's what we'll be like. Because God's going to change all that. But until we get there, don't get discouraged. If you do something wrong and think, God doesn't love me, God is holy, and He's not going to like me if I do this. God loves you no matter what. God didn't love me because I was perfect. The Bible, as a matter of fact, says in the book of Romans that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So He loves me just the way I am. He just don't want me to stay this way. That's what he told the woman in adultery. She got caught in adultery. Jesus looked at her and said, Woman, where are your accusers? She said, I don't have any. He said, Neither do I condemn you. I love you. However, go and sin no more. I love you just the way you are. I just don't want you to do that anymore. And so our life is a constant effort to be obedient to God and overcome sin. Okay? But God is holy. Completely separate from moral evil and sin. Number two, he is righteous and just. Now, what does that mean? That means that he is holy, separate from moral evil and sin, in his treatment of his creation. In other words, he will never do anything morally or sinfully wrong in his dealings with his creation. Something happens in my life I don't like. I can't say... God is not a holy God because that wasn't right. I don't deserve that. If God is a good God, why did He let that happen to me? God, that's just not right. You ever heard anybody say that? You ever maybe thought that in your mind? Let's be honest, we all have, including me. We all have. God, I don't deserve this. Here I am. I'm doing everything I can to serve you. I'm trying to do what's right. I'm trying to be the best I can. And you let this happen to me. God, that's just not right. The truth is, and you know as well as I do, if we got what we deserve, what would we get? Total condemnation and eternity separated from God in hell. If we got what we deserve, that's what we get. Because we don't deserve to be forgiven. But we are. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Not of works, lest any of us should brag about it. God doesn't want me to pay for my own sin. He wants me to be with Him because He loves me. So, remember now, God is always righteous and just. Let me give you some verses. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 8. 2 Timothy 4, 8, Paul calls God the righteous judge, meaning he always does what's right. 
In Genesis chapter 18 and verse 25. Genesis 18 and verse 25. Do you remember when Abraham was begging God not to destroy Sodom? He said, God, if you find 50 righteous people, will you spare the city? And then here's what Abraham said to the Lord, reminding him who he was. Will not the judge of all the earth do what's right? And then the Lord said, okay, since you reminded me of that, like you didn't already know it, but since you claim that promise that I am righteous and I will always do what is just and right, then if I find 50 people, I'll spare the city. And you know how the story went. It went all the way down to 10. And, of course, he didn't find any. But the phrase was made by Abraham, will not the judge of all the earth do right? What is the obvious answer to that question? Yes, he will. He will always do what's just and what is right. Okay? So, he is righteous and he's just. Number three, he is benevolent. He is benevolent. Now, God's benevolence involves four things. Let me give them to you, and then I'll give you some verses, okay? First of all, it involves his goodness or kindness. All right? Let me give you some verses. Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. Romans 8, 28. Anybody know what that says? For we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to His purpose. Because He's a good God. He's kind. The Bible says in Romans chapter 2 and verse number 4 that it is the goodness, or literally in the Greek the word there means kindness. It is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. So God is a good God. He's kind. He's not mean, he's not angry, he's not ugly, he's not after us. He doesn't treat us the way we treat each other. He's God. He's perfect. He's holy. He's separate from moral evil and sin. So his benevolence means he's good. Number two, his benevolence includes his love. As a matter of fact, in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 16, the Bible says God is love. In John 3.16, for God so loved the world that He gave His Son and provided salvation for us. So He is love. John tells us in 1 John, we love Him. Why? Because He first loved us. Man, that's great. I love Him, and I didn't have to go and Him say, you know what, Bill? I know what kind of person you are, and I am not going to love you until you love me first. You prove to me that you love me, and then I'll love you back. By the way, do we treat each other that way sometimes? That's what Jesus told the Pharisees. I mean, what reward do you have if you love people that love you? I mean, everybody does that. When you really get reward is when you love your enemies. The ones that don't love you. You know why? Because that's when we're most like God. We were His enemy. We crucified Him. And Paul said in Romans, while we were yet sinners, 5.8, Christ died for us. So, God's benevolence includes His love. Number three, it includes His mercy. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 4 tells us He is rich in mercy. Mercy is God not giving us what we deserve. That's mercy. 
And we already talked about what we deserve. So God's mercy is God not giving that to me. And then number four, His benevolence includes His grace. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, we talked about that. We're saved by grace through faith. Um, Ephesians 1, verses 7 and 8, talks about the riches of His grace. Grace is God giving me what I don't deserve to have. So mercy, so you know the difference. Mercy is God not giving me what I do deserve, a beating. Grace is God giving me what I don't deserve to have, blessings and forgiveness. That is the attribute of God's benevolence. That's why he is those four things, good and kind and loving and merciful and gracious. That is the kind of God he is. He is not a big, mean, angry old man sitting up in heaven trying to make everybody's life miserable. That's not the attribute or consistent with the attributes of God. That's not what the Bible teaches he's like. This is what he's like. Okay. And then finally, number four, truth. Truth. In John 14 and verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Truth simply means that God's knowledge, God himself, is the foundation of all knowledge. In other words, how do I know what's true and what's false? God is true. Everything else is false. Is that not what the apostle said? Let God be true and every man a liar. Because God is true. That's where truth comes from. That's why when we began our study in theology, we talked first about the Bible. Because the Bible is God's word to us. This is God's word written down for us. This is truth. In John 17 and verse 17, Jesus in his prayer said, Father, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Because God is truth. In 1 John chapter 1 and verse 5, the Bible says that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. There is no falsity. There is no deceitfulness. There is no lying in God. He is total and complete truth in everything He is and says and does. Just the opposite of what John 8.44 says about the devil. He is the father of lies. And He comes to deceive. And God is just the opposite. Now, in closing, what does all this mean to us? I mean, I, I, I realize that God is all these things. Well, first of all, He's everywhere. That means I'm never going to go through any deep valley or dark night in my life that He is not right there next to me. Number two, He's omniscient. He already knows everything. So anything I need, He already knows it and can give it to me. Omnipotence. Anything I need to be done in my life in order for His purpose to be accomplished He's got the power to do it, and I never have to fear Satan because he's more powerful than the devil is. And then his immutability. I never have to worry about him changing his mind about how he loves me or thinks about me or wanting to take me to heaven or his word. I never have to worry about that changing because he's always going to be this kind of God. He's holy, so he's always going to do what is not sinful. And he gives me a model to follow. He's righteous and He's just. He will always do the right thing. Even if I don't understand it, He always does the right thing. 
and then his benevolence. Thank God he loves us. He's kind. He's merciful. He's gracious. He wants more for me than I want for myself. And then finally, he is truth. That means I can believe everything that we just learned because it's true. Okay? Next week, we're going to talk about the Trinity. And uh, actually not next week, but three weeks from now. Next Sunday and the Sunday after, I will be on vacation. I'm going to come back so tan. Actually, I'm probably going to come back sunburned. But um, but Roger has um, graciously agreed to teach our class for us for the next two weeks. If you've never heard Roger teach, um, he is the uh, director and owner of the Montessori School in Chapin. Loves the Lord. Chairman of the board of directors of Bill Crockett Ministries and a great guy. And loves the Bible. And uh, we talked a little bit about the topic he's going to be talking about, which is right in line with what we're doing. I'm not going to steal his thunder. I'll let him tell you next week. But you're really going to enjoy it. Um, matter of fact, somebody needs to get a tape recorder because I want to hear it. But uh, you're really going to enjoy that. And I appreciate him doing that. So in three weeks, when I get back, we're going to talk about the Trinity. Uh, how is God three persons but one person, but he's three persons, but he's just one? How do we figure that out? Well, I can tell you, we ain't going to figure it out, but we'll do our best, okay? Father, thank you for your word, for the privilege to study it. Thank you for who you are, that you love us so much. In Jesus' name, amen.